Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss, and I hope you're doing well, staying safe, happy, and healthy. We have great guests today, so let's get right to it. Later, we'll meet comedian Charlie Demers. CBC Radio called him one of the smartest comics out there. He's an acclaimed Vancouver playwright, author, radio personality, voice actor, and comedian. And he also has a new comedy album called I Hope I Don't Remember This My Whole Life. It's available now wherever you legally buy and download albums. And we'll hear all about that in just a little while from Charlie. We'll also get to know actor Tim Roth. The English actor is possibly best known for his collaborations with Quentin Tarantino, movies like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Four Rooms, and The Hateful Eight. He's also a Golden Globe and Oscar-nominated actor who returns to theaters in Sundown, an intriguing film about a man who radically changes his life. We'll talk all about that movie, his memorable turn in Pulp Fiction, and his upcoming role in She-Hulk opposite Tatiana Maslany a little bit later on in the show. First, though, let's get to know comedian and author Catherine Ryan. I've spent the last year touring all around the UK, mostly making people angry because I have announced that I don't want a boyfriend. And they're like, but you could get one. I know. Um, I love men, but I feel that men are like dolphins and that they should be enjoyed on holiday. <laughs> and they're very intelligent, almost as smart as people. Aren't you? Catherine Ryan is a Canadian who moved to England in 2007 with a boyfriend who wanted to start a comedy career in the UK. Now, his comedy career didn't take off, but her sure did. And now Brits know her and love her from the many panel shows she's appeared on, her wildly popular No Filter podcast, Telling Everybody Everything, or her Netflix comedy drama, The Duchess. She also has a new series, Backstage with Catherine Ryan, which will showcase live stand-up sets from beloved and emerging comedians. She's known for being hilariously herself in a very non-apologetic way, so it doesn't come as any surprise that her latest project, a memoir that details her rise to fame in the UK and her Canadian life before that as a Hooters waitress and Ryerson student, and before that in her life in Sarnia, is called The Audacity. Catherine Ryan joined me via Zoom from London. Well, I think comedians were really lacking in conversation. I always feel like comedy is meant to be a two-way conversation. And we weren't allowed to gig, obviously, in lockdown. We weren't allowed to go to all the towns and cities that we normally go to. So I started a podcast and people would email in and we had a dialogue that way. And lots of people were asking for advice. So the audacity is a memoir and it's a comedy memoir, but it's also a how-to because I realized that I have a lot of advice to give. I have lots of life experiences. I've made a lot of mistakes and I can hopefully impart some of the wisdom that I've gained onto other people. So tell me a little bit about determining the style of the book. It's a how-to and it literally has uh, titles like How to Marry Your High School Boyfriend. There's chapters uh, with, with names like that. Tell me a little bit about uh, that was, was that uh, at the forefront of your mind when you were sitting down to write, or was it going to be more of a straightforward memoir that turned into a how-to book? Well, I think it's very strange to write a memoir in your thirties because, <laughs> you know, I definitely have a lot of hopefully life left to live, but um, I was absolutely ready to be that bridge between someone's mother and uh, someone's sister to give that type of you know, tipsy auntie 
advice. And I think it's interesting to me being the mother of a 12 year old, there are 12 year olds who come to my show and 14 year olds and 16 year olds, but also men and older couples. And I just feel like I'm at a specific place in my career where the young people still listen to me. And even though I kind of have a dirty mouth, I do have very empowering advice. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll frame it like a how-to. And then it's not so daunting for me as well as the author, because I was just writing, oh, now I'll do a chapter about this relationship. Now I'll do a chapter about getting started in comedy. So it made it a lot more palatable, something that I could really, um, I, I, would, I could write it without getting overwhelmed. I think it just worked. It was a really organic way to write the funny book. And I know that uh, the podcast came out of the pandemic. You talk about the two-way conversation that comedy is when you're on stage uh, with an audience and you missed that. So you recreated that with the podcast. Um, the The writing of this book uh, was must have been done in isolation. You live in England. Things were locked down tight there for a very long time. Yeah. Was it a way of connecting somehow it seems odd because you're writing it on a computer and it's not really, it's not a personal connection, but you're talking about very personal things. Uh, was that a way of sort of pandemic coping? I mean, I cope really well in all type of scenarios. I'm very robust, Richard, but I definitely wrote it um, from a personal standpoint. What I tried to do is email my editor all the chapters as though I was writing a letter to a best friend. And I, I do offer full disclosure and I'm very confessional in my comedy. And I just thought that's how I want the book to come across. I want people to feel like they're uh, getting advice and hearing secrets from a best friend because that's the type of comedy that I gravitate towards. Mm -hmm. So I was all alone in lockdown and I just wrote these emails to my editor. Like now I want to discuss this and now I want to talk about this. And I tried to forget that it would be published one day and people in Canada could buy it and people in my hometown could buy it. I just sort of, I did what I always do which is I forget that there are consequences. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to my interview with Catherine Ryan. Find her book, The Audacity, wherever you buy fine books. The book is uh, is funny by times. It is uh, very empowering by times. But you delve into some dark uh, parts of your life. You talk about toxic relationships. You talk about uh, the death of a friend when you were still living in Sarnia, Ontario. Um, did writing about those things bring up these bad memories or was it a way to push them away? Or have you already done that? And this was just another manifestation of that. I think it was a catharsis because there are certain subjects that aren't appropriate for the Apollo stage or to put in a Netflix special. Um, pregnancy loss affects so many families, but I don't think it's something that I would tackle in a stand-up set because it could be very alienating. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, um, oh, I think the book is a good way to be more earnest and more sincere and reveal some of the darker things. And I do believe that there's lightness and dark. Mm -hmm. And I do think that you can discuss these subjects in the right environment, in the right context, and still produce a really funny memoir. So unfortunately, the young woman who was murdered in my town in Sarnia, that event was heartbreaking for her family, for her best friends. But as someone who knew her as a colleague at work, it also wrote on the canvas of who I was becoming as a young woman. And I made um, conclusions about men based on that event. And I think it kickstarted 
a whole narrative about me thinking that men could be very dangerous. And I think that's an important issue to discuss domestic homicide. And, um, you know, these are not subjects for a stand up set necessarily. You know, I always watch the specials and I love when comedians tackle really dark subjects because I feel like I can take it. But for me, I certainly didn't want to, you know, I think I need to be out of the pandemic for a little while, get my chops back before I delve into something so serious. I certainly wouldn't want to trigger anyone trying to have a fun Saturday night out. Right. And you did some Zoom shows, right? Zoom comedy shows. Did you try those? I did not try many. No. I was very, um, again, <laughs> because they're awful, right? Yeah. <laughs> For me, uh, as an audience member, they didn't really work. And I can only imagine how soul destroying it was for the comedians. Right. I didn't want to do that. I just feel like comedy is a very specific medium. And to translate that to video chat for me, I mean, but I'm again, I'm in a position of privilege where I had other things going on. I could take a break. And a lot of my peers and I will never forget the clubs that really supported me in the beginning. You know, I started at Yuck Yucks on John and Adelaide, and I know so many grassroots comedy clubs in the UK that went under during the pandemic. And I also know a lot of my peers didn't have the um, luxury to turn down Zoom gigs. You know, they had to adapt and they had to do them. But uh, those of us who had the luxury, we did not want to become TikTokers overnight. I just didn't do it. Where do you think that uh, this well of confidence that you talk about in the book, uh, that you exude on stage and on television and the specials and things, where do you think that comes from? I think I owe a lot of it to my mother. I think my mom demonstrated, unfortunately, a real um, fiery spirit, but a lack of confidence when it came to pursuing her own interests. And she made a lot of sacrifices as so many people do when they want to raise a family or, you know, they, they, they go into what they believe is a safe industry and certainly not everyone can be an artist, mm -hmm. but I think I, I understood very young and this is a big part of what I hope to teach people in any industry is I learned very young that it's impossible for everyone to like you and to sp spend any time or energy trying to make that. So is a real um, fruitless, pursuit. It's not possible. And I just became really peaceful about that as probably a teenager. I went, oh, well, not everyone's going to like what this is, but I'll find my tribe and I'll just do whatever I have to do. I wanted to go on adventures and I wanted to try. I wanted to try so many things. And I did. And I failed a lot of those times. I auditioned for a Sean Paul music video. I've not been in a Sean Paul music video. You know, I've, I've had loads of comedy gigs where I died on my butt and that's good for me. I like those experiences and they've only made me stronger. And now I'm 38. I think a lot of 38 year old women are uh, finally pretty confident. <laughs> that was Catherine Ryan. Find her book, The Audacity, wherever you buy fine books. Let's get to know Tim Roth. As part of the Brit Pack, a nickname given to a group of up-and-coming British actors in 1986 that included Roth, Colin Firth, Daniel Day-Lewis, and Gary Oldman, Tim Roth made a name for himself in a wide variety of movies. From The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, Vincent and Theo, and Rosencrantz and Gilderstern are dead, to his collaborations with Quentin Tarantino, he is an in-demand actor. 
He's a Golden Globe and Oscar-nominated actor who returns to theaters in Sundown, an intriguing film about a man who radically changes his life. In Sundown, Roth plays a wealthy man who attempts to abandon his family on vacation in Mexico after the death of his mother. It is his second collaboration with director Michel Franco and is winning praise from critics for his performance as a character study of a man at the end of his tether. Tim Roth joined me via Zoom. Now, I just read an interview with Mick Jagger about his acting roles, and he once asked Jack Nicholson, when you build a character, where do you start? And Jack Nicholson said, well, with his sex life. And Um, I thought that was kind of an interesting way in. With a character like Neil, where do you start? Well, it's it's kind of unique with um, Michelle. So... It, it 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 doesn't it, it it doesn't arrive as a script. It starts with a conversation. Mm. And for example, when we did Chronic uh, a while back, you know, he wanted he had experienced um, uh, palliative nurse um, within his own family, so he was interested in making a film about about that and what motivates them and all that particular person in that film the same was with this really he called me up and said I've got an idea about a guy uh, and and uh, who is going through ABC and it, then the conversation begins I said oh that sounds fascinating and then it, it then for quite some time before there is a script um, it's just conversation where we hammer out ideas where we we um, we we talk about we talk about who this person might be, where he might be from, why he is um, behaving the way that he is. All of those things become a, 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 a very detailed discussions, and then we scrap everything and start again. It's 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 really live when you're working with Michelle. And then he goes, okay, I'm going to go write first draft. That comes back. It's peeled apart, picked apart tossed it tossed out of the window start again do you know and and gradually the script comes together um and that is what you land with wherever you and then of course the the very much for him the place in which we were filming was a was a character in itself the notion of somebody coming from such entitlement and being so white uh, to being uh, in a place where that was just not evident, uh, the class divide there, and 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 placing someone with, for whatever reason, in that environment and filming that that became um, that's the part of the journey itself. Anyway, um, not, and nothing, by the way, pre- could prepare a person for Acapulco. It's remarkable, absolutely stunning, and wild. Um, but, uh, and so, so the journey to that is, is uh, an unusual one. The journey from the first phone call to um, when he calls a rap on, on filming uh, is a long and intricate and very uh, evolving one, you know. And then he goes away and makes the po- does the post and then the film is whatever it is. And that, I haven't seen it yet, so I'm, I'm uh, 
looking forward to it. You're listening to Tim Roth on The Richard Krause Show. Find his new film, Sundown, in theaters now on VOD after April 29th. Well, I've been reading about that, that you, you haven't seen it, but you have talked to some people who have seen it. Some found it hilarious. Some found it dark. Uh, some found it sad. Uh, and you say, well, you don't know, because that's the magic of this filmmaker, Michel Franco. He takes things and, and he'll massage it in its own way in the uh, in the editing room. Well, I think also he doesn't what he doesn't do is is, um, you know, treat the audience as dummies. You know, they are they, the audience comes on this journey with us. That we, you know, we're not standing there um, and and regurgitating plot to let the audience know what to tell them, what to think, to to tell them what's coming or what's happening while we're doing it. We strip all of that away, and so the audience is on the journey with us. And so, as a consequence, and it's interesting, I've heard that from um, from various people who have seen it. They've seen a very different film. It gives the audience. Um, their own individual journey, which is kind of what it was supposed, you know, what film was was about uh, very much, was you know, uh, you know, you could you could engage in an argument about what film you just seen together. It, it, it's it's very very interesting and in how that affected you. And um, so he um, so the, it, it when that was said to me, where some people said it was a really funny. Other people thought it was so dark and sociopathic. Um, the idea that two people could be in the same room, if you like, and then and see the same film, but not see the same film was an achievement, I think. And I think that's the kind of thing that Michel often goes for. You know, well, he, he doesn't treat the audience as dummies. He's very unusual and he is a filmmaker. Well, it's a, it, it, it's a quiet movie. It's a silent movie. It's not a silent movie, but it's, it's, there's not as much dialogue uh, because yeah. I think one of the things that that isn't there is uh, pages of exposition. We have to figure out, we have to kind of lean in to the movie to figure it out for ourselves. And I think that's why we're getting this wide variety of opinions about what it's about when it's all said and done. And I think that that's, that's quite the achievement. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, yeah, I think that that, I think that, I think that speaks well of, of, of Michelle as a story, a storyteller. I really do. I'm pleased for him. With a role that is as internal as Neil is in the film, um, does that change the way you approach it? I mean, we talked about the process here, which feels to me different than it is on other movies. Perhaps you don't have uh, the hours of conversation beforehand with the director that you might with Michelle Franco. Um, but, but does it change your the way when you're standing on set, the way that you approach the character. Yes, it does. It, it you know, uh, different, a different, um, different things that ha are required when you're working with Michelle. So certainly of me, you, you know, first, first and foremost, you have to, you have to peel away all of the edifice of, mm -hmm. of acting, get rid of the vanity, get rid of that. It's here we go. And you have to be okay with all of that stuff. We discuss what, um, what the scene is about for each of the characters. And, and that can be in the same way as the audience. That can be uh, very different because people have uh, different reasons for what their behavior. Um, but, um, and then it, de it depending on, on the technical level, it depends on what you 
what is required. Mm -hmm. So if, if, for example, uh, lack of emotion is required, that's one of the harder things to achieve uh, when a camera is on you. Right. And there are there are tricks which I can't remember who taught me that, uh, but there are tricks that you use uh, just in your head where you count back from sort of ten or thirty, to count backwards. Now, when you get to one, you count forwards again, and it stops you thinking about film crew. It stops right. you thinking about, and it gives you some space to just sit. One of the hardest things to do is is to do nothing. One well, and required in this. It, it yeah. must feel counterintuitive as an actor. Yes. When there's a camera uh, on you and people are you're on set and people are watching, you think you have to do something. But well, I you... think so. I think there's a habit that's a there's a tradition of performing. Mm -hmm. And what 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 Michelle requires is to remove, and what I love about working with him is to remove that um layer of performance, allow the audience in and they can sit there with you, sitting on the beach or walking down the beach or having a conversation, they're sitting right there with you trying to figure out what is going on. And so um, you so you have to re remove the actor layer and the movie actor type person layer <laughs> and, and, and really expose yourself. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's difficult, but it's immensely rewarding working with this man. Do you think that Neil, and the way that you've just described portraying him on screen is something that you could have done when you first began acting, or is this something that you, you get the confidence over a, a career that has spanned decades to learn how to do nothing on screen and, and, and feel like that is the best choice for that character in that moment. That's interesting. I, no, I think I could have done it at the beginning because I didn't know what the rules were. Right. So the director would have said, now, this is what I want you to do. <laughs> and he goes, okay. Um, my first job, for example, was entirely on Steadicam. I thought that was normal. Um, and it had only just been invented. Yeah. Uh, uh, the next one was an improvised film. Um, and so I didn't know that those were unusual moments. So yeah. I think if Michelle had been there at the beginning of that, of beginning with me, I would have just assumed that this is how you work. So I was, I would have been interested. What happens is that I think, I mean, my career is intentionally complete mess and I've always liked that. I've always loved that. It's like, eh, whatever. Um, just see what happens next. But, but when you land, when finally, years later from the beginnings to, to, to something like sundown, you land in that. It's almost as though you do have to relearn it. You have to relearn the naivety of your beginnings and bring it to where you are now, I think. Um, and, and luckily I have uh, somebody who, who has the patience and the wherewithal to get me there, which is Michelle. You seem to me to be uh, a director's actor. You have directed a film. The last time I think the last time I spoke to you was at the Toronto International Film Festival in 1999, I think, probably oh, wow. for the war zone. So yeah. it's been a while. Uh, but uh, so you've directed. But I also look back at your career and you've made multiple films with the same directors, I think, notably Quentin Tarantino, but Mike Lee yeah. and, and, and now Michelle Franco. Do you consider yourself 
a, a, a director's actor, someone that that for whom choosing a role is kind of sometimes based on who the director is and that maybe is the most important thing? Yeah, I mean, there are certain directors who you just, you know, can't believe your luck. Yeah. Um, uh, and Michelle and Quentin uh, uh, fit into that category, absolutely. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure I've, I've been very challenging over the years. <laughs> um, but, but I, I, I don't know. I, I hope so. I would, would be my answer to that. I hope so. You're listening to actor Tim Roth on The Richard Krause Show. His film Sundown is in theaters right now, available on VOD on April 29th. I, I try and deliver. I like to be able to walk, even if the film is crap, you want to be able to walk away um, thinking, all right, well, I did my best. I right. did my best for them. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to do your best. I have uh, two quick questions before we run out of time. Uh, She-Hulk is coming up, and I ask you about that because you're working with the wonderful Canadian, uh, Tatiana Maslany. Yeah, yeah, she was. she's amazing. I didn't know, I, I didn't know anything about her, and then this, <laughs> she's one of the funnier people I've, I've, I've met. She's so funny, so clever, and uh, incredibly capable. I mean, my God, what she had to do in that thing. Um, you know, uh, her um, just her technical ability on 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 on, uh, on one note is remarkable, uh, and the energy and the patience that she brings to that kind of world. I mean, that was a lot on her shoulders, mm -hmm. a lot, as you will see. But I think she's pulled it off. It's just a lot of fun to work with. Yeah. She is hilarious, uh, but she also has what what. I think is in, you can tell when there's a good actor around when that actor has comic timing, and she has that. She has that, and uh, so there's uh, there's a uh, there's a lot to be um, there's a lot to look forward to with her. I think I think that I think she's going to kick some serious ass down the line, and uh, she's she's a very talented person. Oh, she's she's amazing. Yeah. Okay, my last question here. So uh, I went to see Pulp Fiction at a theater oh. on its opening weekend. It absolutely made my head crack open. And while every all the all the uh, screenings were delayed because people were sitting and clapping and talking about uh. the movie, they wouldn't leave the theaters. So as my audience that I was with started to applaud, I left, ran out to the box office, bought another ticket and went right back in and watched it again. Uh. I couldn't believe the thing. And I don't know how many times I've watched it since, but yeah. I just learned, and this is my question for you about this. And this is kind of just film geek stuff for me. But um, and the the diner scene, which starts mm -hmm. and sort of ends the movie, mm -hmm. um, the dialogue is different between Pumpkin, that's you, and Honey Bunny, because it, 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 I always assumed that it was just take after take the words varied a little bit. But now I've read that it was supposed to be seen through your eyes the first time and Jules's eye, the Samuel L. Jackson yeah, character, the second time. The yeah, yeah. Quite so it's a memory play at the end. Yeah, yeah, it's quite remarkable, and uh, you know, and that's on, and it's on the page. This thing with Quentin's, which is yeah, it's very different from Michelle's thing. Yeah. Michelle's process is very different from Quentin's. Um, but you, when you get the script and you get it as a script, if you're lucky enough ever to have that in your life, by the way. Um, whew, anyway, 
when you get that, uh, it's all there. He's done, he's done the improv. He's done all of that for you before you even know about it. It lands that way. It's remarkable. It is incredible. I mean, um, when I think of uh, Heath Flake, for example, uh, there were moments when we improvised because he, he found something we'd said off camera hilarious. So that became a thing. But apart from that, it's there. It's scripted. There it is. He's done that. He's, he's otherworldly, I think. Yeah. I, I know you say you never watch anything, but have, you must have watched Pulp Fiction with an audience. Oh, yes. Early it on, when, oh, that, yeah, yeah. when that uh, Dick Dale song kicks in, it is yeah. one of the great moments in, oh, in no, my film-going life. No, it's, he's incredible. He's incredible. Love that man. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me today. All right, mate. Take care. Thanks. You've been listening to Tim Roth on The Richard Krause Show. The Golden Globe and Oscar-nominated actor stars in Sundown. He plays a wealthy man who attempts to abandon his family on vacation in Mexico after the death of his mother. The film is in theaters right now and on VOD on April 29th. In this segment, we'll meet comedian Charlie Demers. CBC Radio called him one of the smartest comics out there. He is an acclaimed Vancouver playwright, author, radio personality, voice actor, and comedian, and also has a new comedy album called I Hope I Don't Remember This My Whole Life, available now wherever you legally buy or download albums. Charlie Demers joined me via Zoom from his home in Vancouver. Congratulations on I Hope I Don't Remember This My Whole Life. I think the title of that sums up a way a lot of people are feeling right now after two years of being locked down. It's, it's actually a, a, a verbatim, word-for-word word, uh, quote from uh, something my my daughter said. As you say, kind of, it's too perfect for the for the moment. It, it, it just... Felt, felt right. Felt right for this time and place. Tell me a little bit about this album and the, the couple of years leading up to it. We've all gone through the pandemic. Uh, comedians got hit hard because, well, everything was closed. So there was no place to play. So, you know, on March 12th, 2020, you were probably doing a gig somewhere. And then the next day, the, the doors all started to slam shut. So tell me a little bit about that. It just sort of one of those things where immediately... Uh, we lost um, not only our sort of means of of making a living. I mean, the the the, the there's there's sort of no words strong enough to describe uh, the the level of kind of financial uh, hit that 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 we took as an industry and as individuals, um, but also just suddenly the uh, kind of existential uh, loss of 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 just who who you are as a person what, what what your identity is what what you contribute to society what you do for your family all of a sudden that was all kind of on the table um and and just sort of wiped clean my sort of sense of the pandemic is that there there are basically sort of three kinds of people there's this very small group where basically nothing changed. You just kind of kept chugging along. You, you, you did what you were doing before, but maybe you did it at home. Then there's one group of people who, who were just suddenly asked to, <laughs> to just do this, just these heroic amounts of work. <laughs> you know, your, your ER workers, uh, uh, nurses, teachers, delivery drivers, grocery store people. I mean, you know, the, the list goes on, but people who all of a sudden were, were just asked to, to give of themselves at, at a rate that was just kind of completely unsustainable. And then there were the people who were just kind of like, 
put on the shelf and had absolutely nothing to do. And and that was comedians. It was devastating. Um, you know, it's it's a really hard thing to, to 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 go through. And I mean, I I turned forty the year of you know in twenty twenty. I think you have enough uh, existential angst that year. Uh, to begin with in, in, a, in a normal time, right? You're listening to comedian Charlie Demers on The Richard Krause Show. Find his album, I Hope I Don't Remember This My Whole Life, wherever fine comedy albums are sold. I, I think over the course of uh, the two years of pandemic, I think like a lot of my friends and colleagues, I mean, I've had moments where I thought, you know, is is this it? Am I going to come out of this thing in a completely different profession? Am I going to, you know, will I ever be a, a, a comedian again? Is it ever going to come back? Uh, I think the moment that I knew for sure that however long this went on, I, I would be a comedian um, was we, we recorded some specials for the Winnipeg Comedy uh, Festival uh, in the late fall of 2020. Just that feeling of getting to be in front of an audience again, feeling their gratitude to see a performer, feeling my gratitude for having them there. Um, uh, and, and that's the feeling that I think, uh, uh, you know, carries through into to the album. The album was recorded almost exactly a year after that, uh, but it was recorded at a, you just this kind of little miracle time in, in British Columbia where the restrictions had been lifted to the extent that we were allowed to have um, a full capacity audience. It was a, it was my first and the venue's first sold out full capacity show uh, at that point um, uh, since the pandemic had, had started. Uh, people were in the room, they had to wear masks if they kind of got up and went to the bathroom or something, but that was it. That was the only difference between it and a, and a normal show. And, and just that feeling of, of, of being up in front of people, getting to tell jokes, getting to do uh, in a basically normal way what I've been doing for, you know, 17 years, um, it, was, it was just incredible. And so, so I was just so, it, it meant so much to capture that, to have it as an album. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's hopefully, you know, now as we're rolling it out, it's the stage in the pandemic where, I think a lot of comedians, a lot of audiences, a lot of performers are, are feeling, uh, you know, a, a, a timorous, gentle optimism. We're, we're ready to be knocked off our feet again if it <laughs> happens because it's happened so many times. But, but I think there's there's a real feeling of hope right now, which is really nice. During that period, I wonder if you felt like doing comedy is kind of like a muscle, and if you don't use that muscle, it atrophies after a while. Was that something that ever occurred to you or did you feel that way? Absolutely. Um, uh, There's no question about it. You're, you're getting up several times a week to to make sure that you're keeping yourself sharp, that you remember how to respond if something, uh, you know, if, if Will Smith gets up out of the audience and slaps you in the face. All of those things are, um, are, are, are muscle memories. And so, yeah, there was absolutely a feeling of... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to forget how to get up in front of a crowd if I take a big break right now. I mean, I'm in my early 40s now, and I mean, this is supposed to be kind of, this is supposed to be the time of my career where all the long years of getting yeah. up are, are paying off, right? There was there was definitely that fear. There was also the fear of just like, like so many people in this moment of the, the great reset uh, that we're having as a society, maybe I wouldn't want to be a comedian after this, like mm. that, that maybe this would change me so much that... 
I, I, w I, I would no longer have that feeling. There, there were also good things, um, good things for me as a comic, or I think good things for, for the, um, the scene that, that came out of some of the difficulty. Those Zoom shows that a lot of us did, where you know, you're basically performing into a laptop on a stack of books in your room. I mean, I was using my seasonal affective disorder uh, light, uh, light therapy <laughs> lamp as my spotlight. Those Zoom shows were so hard that the minute you got up in front of any number of real people again, it was like you were in zero gravity. Right. Like uh, it was like uh, playing on a, on a snooker table and then all of a sudden, uh, you're just back to playing real pool. And, and it's, you know, if you could teach yourself the discipline of performing for 10, 15 minutes, half an hour into a laptop, into a bunch of Zoom screens where everybody's shut off their cameras, their audio isn't coming in, you have no idea how something's landing. I mean, you can feed a lot of delusions that way about, uh, about thinking a bad joke is, is better than it is. But if you can be your own best friend in a moment like that and, and, and keep yourself going through, I mean, uh, to be able to take that newfound ability to a stage, you know, that's, that's a pretty cool thing as well. So, so I think that, you know, there were moments from the difficulty that I think will produce actually uh, stronger comedians um, on the other side. That was of it. Charlie Demers on the Richard Krause show. Find his album. I hope I don't remember this my whole life forever. Fine comedy records are sold. Big thanks to Charlie for stopping by. Also to Catherine Ryan. Find her book, The Audacity, wherever fine books are sold. And check out Tim Roth's film, Sundown, in theaters now on VOD on April 29th. My biggest thanks, of course, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. Music